answer. We like to read it every single week, so I'm going to read the question and then we're going to respond with the answer to it. What is required in the second commandment? The answer is the second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in His work. Amen. Uh, so, if we don't have a children's verse up here, uh, children, you are doing. Here we go. So, kids, if you would come forward, we'd like to have our kids come up, and we'd like to do this verse with them, and then we'd like to pray with them, and pray for the teachers that are going to be down there with them, teaching them the Word of God and teaching them about Jesus. Go okay, well, come up here. Okay, so here it is. Do y'all remember memorizing this? No. It's all right. <laughs> So John 14, 6. Read it with me if you don't remember it, okay? John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. I'm going to pray for y'all real quick before y'all go down. Father, we thank you for kids. Uh, we thank you for the many blessings that you've given us of kids, of newborns, of even myself, the, the new baby. We're just so thankful for the life into our homes and into our churches of these little kids. Uh, I pray that as they go forward, uh, that the teachers are, that you've equipped them, that you will send your spirit to these children to receive the gospel. Uh, I pray uh, for the teachers and that they would just serve well. It's all in Christ's name. Amen. So, Kale, if you would come forward and bring your word to us.
you've ever taken a look at uh, other religions, uh, I remember in junior college I had a world religion class taught by atheists, so it was just slightly biased. It's mostly just a class where we could rip Christianity. Uh, what I do remember is I did actually take some notes and I remember learning uh, some correct things. I did look them up. So I want to give you just a quick summary, very quickly, of three different religions and what they believe and to show you where we're going why I'm doing that. So first I want to take in uh, Buddhism. Uh, kind of main idea there is that man really isn't that bad. You're not depraved. Uh, most Buddhists don't even believe God actually exists. Uh, some do, some don't. Sin is really just kind of like a misstep. It's something that you're not doing correctly. Uh, it's really because of your ignorance to what is good, quote-unquote good. It's not really wrong. It's just it's ignorance. Karma is nature's balance. You get what's coming to you. We know what karma is, right? You do bad things. That'll happen. You do good things. Good things will happen, right? Uh, by following the four noble truths, there are four things they've set up. The fourth one, which is following eight more things, called the, eight, the eightfold path. If you do these things correctly, you follow them well, you'll go to what's called nirvana, you'll go to heaven, you're set, okay? Hinduism, uh, it's considered polytheistic, that's a fancy word for many gods, so poly means many, theist means gods, so many gods. They have millions, they have numbers, there's just a new god made, concept. millions of gods. According to their book called the Vedas, that's how you say that, human beings are essentially divine, so you have this divine spark within you, you have divine potential, you're meant to be divine. The more good works you do than bad, the life after death, after you die, you get reincarnated. So if you live a fairly good life, I'm not sure how really you balance that, figure that out. If you live a decent life, you get reincarnated, you come back from the dead as, I don't know, a squirrel or a tree or a possum, whatever. The better life you live, you keep doing it until you live perfectly, and then you go to what they call heaven, which is with the main god called Brahman. Okay? It's pretty, uh, Pretty Last one I'll give you. Islam. There is one guy, his name is Allah, and he has one prophet named Muhammad. They believe the Quran. They believe the portion of the, of the Old Testament and only about a couple things in the New. They follow the five pillars of Islam, so there's five things you got to do, uh, which those include, for the most part, praying. You have to pray five times a day. You have to fast during the month of Ramadan. You have to tithe. And if possible, because of financial means, you have to make a trip to the Holy Land. You have to. If you can afford it, that's great. If you can, that's okay. That's the exception. Good deeds have to outweigh bad. And here's what any honest Muslim will tell you. If you ever heard one talk or asked one, I've had the opportunity to do both, they will tell you there is no guarantee to know where they're going to go. They can be devout. They can be, I mean, priests. The only way to know if you're going to heaven is if you really, the only guarantee is, is if you die a martyr. That's why when they have these horrific explosions and assaults, because they're guaranteed heaven. They're guaranteed all the virgins. So I guess if you're a girl, you get virgin men. So, but the girls. Uh, but uh, you're guaranteed heaven if you're if you're a martyr. If you're not, then you're not. Because Allah is sovereign. You know, even why he, he says no. And we can go further. I could jump into being a Mormon, being a witness, being a Jew, being a Sikh, being a Scientologist, being a Wiccan, being a Unitarian Universalist. You can name any other religion. There's a lot of similarities. And kind of two crucial ones are what Jesus goes that we see in this text. First one is that humanity really isn't that bad. You're not really that bad. You're just kind of flawed. You make mistakes. We're all humans. A human is to err. It's okay. 
the second one is you can make it to heaven if you just try, you just really give your effort, you get a really good shot. It's not guaranteed, but man, you got a really good shot. And you're, you are divine. You're so godlike. You're, you look like God, man. You just have this spark in you that if you just uncover this jewel, we just, we just fall in praise of you. Kind of sounds like a promise in the Garden of Eden, if you remember Genesis chapter 3. So today in Luke chapter 9, we're going to see that the focus of the gospel and of Christianity, and not just that, but the focus of the God of the universe, the focus of Yahweh, the focus of the triune God himself is the cross. God loves the cross. It was his idea. If you just look at all these religions, there's what's the, the core? You. Man, you're, you're, it's, all, it's about you. And the cross is the divine idea before the foundation of the world. That God would die for his rebellious subjects. And it's, it's, so, it's so sure that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He was so dead set on this that he would not be swayed by it. Because the cross is our only hope. The center of the gospel, of Christ's heart, and of the Lord's mind. Now, I grew up in Southern California when I was a kid. My dad taught me uh, from him, from our pastor. My wife showed me later on that this is a common acronym that Californians are just coin everything. Apparently, I thought they did, but anyway, uh, that true joy, J O Y, is found in Jesus, others, yourself. Right. So, as, as we walk through this text, I want to see first that. The cross-centeredness of Jesus, and from that we'll see two implications. One is how you see others, and one is how you see yourself. So it's Jesus and the cross, others and the cross, and yourself and the cross. So first we want to see the cross-centeredness of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 51 here. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So here Luke draws the entire focus from here all the way to chapter 19. It's all about Jesus going to Jerusalem, where he's going to die. So if you're following the Gospel account, Luke chapter 1, Luke says that his purpose of this text is to give you an orderly account, correct? So this is the order of events. This is how it happened. So from this point on, if you, if you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus just he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. He keeps telling his disciples, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. He's marching forward to the cross. We see this earlier in Luke 9.22. If you guys look there, Luke 9.22 and Luke 9.44. Jesus already told his disciples, it's coming. It's coming. I'm going to be betrayed by lawless men. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed on the third day, rise again. In verse 51 here, Luke draws us to the main focus that Jesus has in going to the cross. Look at this. When the days drew near for him to be what? Your Bible might say uh, to ascend. Right here it says to be taken up. Same same idea, same word. Jesus Himself is looking forward to the ascension. Do you see that? When the days journey for Him to be taken up, Luke is trying to just make it so clear. Jesus knew why He was here. It was to ascend. He came to die to ascend. He came to go back where He came. Jesus loved the Lord. He came for the glory of the Father. He came to be glorified as God the Son. Jesus is God-centered. He loves the Father, and the Father loves Him. So Luke brings us to this powerful point that Jesus is going to ascend. Now, if you've read the end of Luke in the beginning of Acts, that's the, that's the hinge. The beginning of the end of Luke is Jesus was taken up. In 
the beginning of Acts, which is Luke's second book, is Jesus gives instructions and then he's taken up. So Luke seems to, to want, wants to see this as extremely important, that the ascension is crucial here. How often do we contemplate the ascension? You guys ever think about that very often? We love Easter. Man, we love that cross, and rightly so. We love the third day. But 40 days after Jesus ascends to the right hand, reigns over the universe as the God-man, Milky Way does his bidding. Everything he says happens. Jesus is the king of the universe. <coughs> you know that in the New Testament, do you know what the most quoted Old Testament verse is? Some people call it God's favorite verse. I think that's fittingly so. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. I'll read it to you. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's quoted like 25 times in the New Testament. It's either quoted to directly or it's alluded to to where, like Paul and Ephesians writes all about this text. It's everywhere. It's 25 times in the New Testament. Jesus himself even tells the Pharisees this. Who do you think the Lord is talking to there? Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand. So this is the glory that Jesus came for. He came to be ascended to the right hand of the Father. Because Jesus knows that the way to the crown is through the cross. The way to glory is through suffering. Is that not the same life we see here for us? The way of the cross, or the, to glory, friends, is through the cross. The economy of heaven is upside down. You're not good bad. You need the cross to show how bad you are so you know good Christ is. The economy of heaven is so backwards. For us, it would seem. A crown of thorns for a crown of glory. This was the foundation of what Jesus was seeking to do here. Look at verse 51. His face was set to go to Jerusalem. <coughs> Oftentimes, if you know much about even just popular Christian culture, I hate that kind of phrase, but um, just kind of what Christians talk a lot about or have issues with. Um, Jesus is always roped into other things that he didn't really need to be involved with. Um, I hope I understand. Um, he's roped into groups that are focused about Jesus was a racial justice warrior. He was all about politics. Uh, he was just this rock-solid moral teacher. Um, or even just a leader. A great leader. Now, does Jesus have to do with all those things? I think he does. I think the gospel is very clear. All those things have implications from the Bible. I think you can say that. But what was Jesus' main focus? What did he primarily come to do? I want to read you a text that you all know. If you don't, I want you to know it. John 3, 16 and 17 says this. This is why Jesus came. He tells you why he came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, so why did he send him? But in order that the world might be saved through him. So why did Jesus come? To save Jews and Gentiles. You're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Jesus didn't come just to condemn, but he came to save sinners. So here we see Jesus clearly saying that his sending was to save. He came for the cross. In John chapter 4, Jesus says his food is to do the will of his Father. What's the will of the Father? One region that text, it's oh so clear. John chapter 6 says this. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. 
Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, great. What is that? What's the will? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus came for the cross. Do you see how clear this is? He came to die. The Father's will, God's eternal plan before there was anything made, was there was going to be a lamb who was going to be betrayed, who would die for sinners. That's why he came. He didn't come primarily for social justice, though he came, I think, to do something with that. But that's not the core. The core is the cross. Jesus' resolve was dead set to die on Calvary Street. And as sinners who were saved from that, we just have to thank him for not changing his resolution. That he came, even though he'd be betrayed, he came to die. Book of Revelation, uh, it's a terrifying book, it's confusing and very interesting. Uh, what I love is the best way to kind of, in, in math class, uh, I think it was every odd question had the answer back book. Remember that? You ever do that? I did that and I cheated all the time. But they gave me the books they wanted. Anyway, point is, you go to the back of the book to find out the answers, right? Well, the back of the book of Bible, Revelation, Revelation 13, 8, 17, 8 says that Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. So this plan was so close to God's heart that it was in the infinite counsels of trying God. Isn't that good news? This wasn't just a last resort. That if you're a believer this morning, God wanted to send us something for you. Those who run this hell-bound way, we're saying, who are rebels, Jesus came to die for. Jesus so cross-centered in his living and his dying. He was about the cross. He knew where he was going. He knew he was to return to his father soon. He knew what he had to do to return, finish the work. And if you're a believer this morning, you know that his ascension isn't the end of the work. Why did he ascend? Believe it or not, Jesus said it's better that he leaves, John 16, because he could send the Spirit. So the work of Calvary is complete, but it doesn't end with his sitting. It continues. The finished work on the cross and his ascension, where he sends the Spirit by the Father, to fill the believers on the earth to do His will. So if you're a believer, it's because Jesus finished the work on Calvary and sent His Spirit to your hearts. You understand that? That's good news. Jesus wasn't swayed. The work of the cross didn't just end there. It's extended to the heavens. That's why He went to apply the work to the hearts of His people. He now empowers the preaching of the gospel, the reading of the word. The work that Jesus came to accomplish is finished. It's applied to us through His Spirit. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem because he loved the Father's will. He was resolute to accomplish the eternal plan of God and to extend his reign to his people's hearts. Now, we're going to see how does this reign extend to my heart? So, okay, Jesus, Jesus was cross-centered. I think we agree on that, correct? He loved the cross. He did. He can't do that. How does that change how I see other people and how I see myself? We're going to go next. So how does this cross cause me to see others? Go to verse 52, 53, so we're going to go. And when he, Jesus, right, sent messengers ahead of him, who went to enter the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. 
But they, the people, sorry, the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So Jesus now seeks to make his way to Jerusalem by entering Samaria. It's helpful to know who is Samaria. I think we all kind of maybe have a, you've heard at least the term Samaria or Samaritans. I think we know the term Good Samaritan, right? Just going around. I heard the news actually recently. Uh, Good Samaritan. So who are the Samaritans? I want to give you a quick little history to understand why this is surprising if you're a disciple. So Samaritans were kind of like, they're kind of like a half-breed. They weren't really a pure people. They're actually, they're mixed between uh, Jews and Samaritans. So they're actually people called Samaritans. They were mixed between Jews. Uh, they're half-pagan, half-Jew. Okay? If you look at the book of 2 Kings chapter 17, you just read the whole chapter. It's not too bad. It's like 40 verses. Shows exactly what they believed in. It's fantastic. The Bible tells you what they did. Uh, sadly, what they did was awful. Uh, so they taught that you should fear the Lord. Good. Alongside worshiping every other idol you want. So, like a half grade. But really, it's a catechism. It's a fail. So they believed you could worship Yahweh, and then on the side, kind of have your little your, your little temple, your idol, you know, bow down to your statue, pray to who you want, and then also bow to Yahweh. And in the Old Testament, God's response to that was, do you not know the commandments that you're teaching your people? This is what he says. He just tells them, do you, do you know what you're teaching them? So God's anger is toward the Samaritans. Because they're idolaters. Not because they were raised, because they're idolaters. So they were idolaters born out of, out of disobedience, so they became a people because the Jews disobeyed and intermarried with idolaters. So not only do they practice idolatry, but they were born out of rebellion. So Samaritans were just you don't really want to be friends with them. They're awful people. The religious, right? They hate your kids. They hate you, right? Make your God's joke. Well, that too. Even more clear, in John chapter 8, the Jews, as an insult, called Jesus demon-possessed, and they say, aren't you a Samaritan and demon-possessed? So it's like a, like a, a hateful term. You're such a Samaritan, Jesus. What do you even know? So being a Samaritan is not exactly the best way to live. Now do you understand why the parable of the Good Samaritan is supposed to be so offensive? You understand? That Good Samaritan? They're not good, Jesus. They're awful. You see that? Um, if you, uh, I've heard, <laughs> I heard a pastor once say that uh, the Bible is not the roadmap to life, but it, it does have some maps in there. You ever seen the maps in there? Uh, the very back of your Bible map, uh, it does. Uh, it's kind of cool. It shows actually where Samaritan was. Where Samaria was, sorry. So Jesus was just in I'm sorry, uh, Capernaum, just a while ago. Chapter 8, he was in Galilee before that. If you look at your map, Samaria is directly south. I mean, it's like, it's just a, a shot straight south. But if you were a Jew, you would take the long way. You walk all the way around Samaria, you walk down the Jordan River, which is dangerous. Just walk all the way around just to avoid these people. Not awful. So there's just this constant, just I hate Samaritans. They hate me too. They're just striking. What did Jesus do? Tell them I'll go right there. So Jesus goes through Samaria. He chose to do so. He sends messengers ahead of him. As he prepares to enter the way, the messengers run in and try to get everybody ready. I don't know, I don't know what they're saying, but I would kind of assume it's either going to be, with Luke chapter 10, it's either going to be the 72 they send out in the next chapter. Some people think, some people think it was James and John that went there. The point is, Jesus sends messengers to prepare the way for him. It's a great calling in life to be a messenger of the Lord. You know that. You may not be thinking millions of dollars, which is okay. 
maybe work at McDonald's or a student at school, or you may be retired. But it's a greater calling to be a messenger of Christ. Jesus could command a lion, command with the lion's mouth, with the voice of the roaring lion that he is, and say, you will submit, you will obey, and will people do it? Instantly. He's God. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. But instead, he chooses to use weak people like us. The messengers. He sends us instead. We exist as messengers, not the message. Um, does anybody here get mail? Two people get mail. Like, you got the mail list? You don't the mail list? Okay. Um, isn't it a crime for your mailman to open your mail, write a little something in there, you put in your mailbox? Why? I don't know, lost that stuff. Point is, his job is not to change the message, correct? Just, here's what it says. I mean, if you get bad mail, it's kind of, it's kind of awful to get bad mail. Like, like bills? Thanks a lot, mailman. It's not his fault. He's just delivering the message, right? He's not tampered with anything in there. He just delivers what he has. Friends, being a Christian is very, very similar to that. You don't get to tamper with the message. You don't change the contents. You just hand it off. You deliver the message. You don't tamper with it. You are not the writer. You're the messenger. It's a weighty and gracious calling to prepare others to meet Christ. So I wonder... Are you in the business of preparing lately? Are you bringing people the message of cross? It's a heavy calling to be called by the Lord to talk to people about His Word. And it's scary. I'm right there with you. But how kind of the Lord to use weak people to show the power of the cross? You must understand your job is to help people understand their sinful condition, to see the loveliness of Jesus Christ, to pray for them, to break down any ideas or barriers that they have. By your own lips, prepare them to meet the Lord as the messengers here did. Verse 53 is a, a common reaction, and I want to see what happens. But the people were being prepared, correct? The people did not receive him. Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. It's a sad text, isn't it? They got to be on fire. We're going to go. Jesus is coming. Get ready. He's coming. When Jesus comes, they just blow him off. A lot of people think it because he's a Jew and they're smeared. I think it's, I think it's arguable. I think the text seems to kind of say the same idea but different. Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. He was looking to Calvary. I know where I'm going. I'm here to pass through. Prepare the way for me. Give us a hurry, but I'm going through. John 1 tells us that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Can you think of the, just the, almost like the sick humor in that? Creatures just reject their creator? How awful. Are we to do that? You made me. Get over it. It's all. So reject. They reject Christ and the side. It's, it's baffling, it's horrifying, it's your only hope. He, he was a man of sorrows, acquitted with grief. But why did he reject him? Because his face was set to Jerusalem. Now, what would your reaction be if you're a disciple? What's a common reaction in, a, in America today? So you go to your friend, present them with Christ, you present the cross, they go, eh. What are you really tempted to do? I'll change the message. 
I'll make it easier. You're Samaritan, you can have two gods. Isn't that tempting? I'm glad the disciples didn't do that. But I think that's a very common reaction today. You can have both. You can be an idolater, you can be a drunk and have Christ, it's okay. You can sleep around, just go to church, that's okay. We're inclusive here. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to, you don't have to repent. You don't have to die. You just come. We'll change it for you. We'll, 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 we'll write a new message. We'll help. Maybe funny, because I, we know churches that do these things. My wife and I live very close to one that does something like that. To make it less, less offensive, more appealing. Let us understand the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The deaths are being saved. It is the power of God. They rejected Christ because his face was set towards Jerusalem. He was so cross-focused and dying for sinners and absorbing their wrath that they turned. Remember, you are a messenger. You just deliver the food. You just go to the mailbox. You just, you don't have to change anything as a responsibility at your job. Maybe resolve to preach and tell the full counsel of God. Not make it more palatable for those who want to hear I think there's a common question for me that rises in the heart. So let's say you tell your friend or your sister or your father, coworker, or school person about the gospel. You reject it, which is common. You're sad, your heart's grieved. You always have someone in mind, guaranteed. You know, one person who has done that. What do you do? Who can we trust them with? I think. Very clearly, I'm showing you to trust them with the Lord. Do you guys know anything else about Samaria in the New Testament? Do you know anything about them? They're, they come up a couple more times in some interesting ways. So first here, they're rejected. It's terrible. And you just want to think, Lord, just change it. Just make it easier. Don't give up all these people. I want to give you a couple, a couple good news reminders. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Helpful verse. Jesus says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, correct? Where does he say that you'll be my witnesses in? Anyone named Shabbatar? Judea and he, why is he named Samaria? He does. You're going there. Judea, Samaria, and all the earth. Jesus said just flippantly throw I think his point was to say, you're going back there. You're going to Samaria. They turned. You're going to turn this was a group that rejected Christ, and yet he's so merciful and faithful. When we, when we are merciless and faithful, he says, go back to Samaria. Go tell them. Uh, John chapter 4, woman at the well. But National Island, which you just guess, you know. Greek, not Samaria. Sorry. She's a Samaritan too. Isn't that cool? What happens to her? You guys know? She believes. She's converted. Verse 39, chapter 4. And many Samaritans from that town believed because of the woman's testimony. Crazy? He wasn't, he wasn't done with people in Samaria. He wasn't done. Messengers just preach and they trust them to the Lord. You see that? The good news. He just leave them. He's kind, he's faithful, he's tender. Acts chapter 8. Philip departs right after Stephen is brutally stoned, killed, gruesomely. And he flies to Jamaica. No, Samaria. You know that? What happens? I'll quote it for you. Philip. Proclaim to them the Christ. 
The crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And there was much joy in that city. They just rejected him in Luke chapter 9. Why is that? Because their child was about to completely bring the message. You see that? Messenger, just prepare. We trust in the Lord. So we have friends, relatives, workers who rejected the Lord. God also prepared them. They trust him to the Father. You know him very well. He saved a wretch like you. You know him. Don't you love him? He's not, he wasn't just done with Samaria. His face was set for Jerusalem, so they had to be friend of Samaritans. So we need to understand that today we befriend the Samaritans of our day. Teach them to obey all the Lord's commanded them to do because of the work of the cross. It's only possible because of what Jesus did on Calvary. They're converted because he was steadfast in the first solution to the cross. So when you preach Christ, you preach the cross. Understand that. Lastly, I want us to see the resolve of Jesus' cross-centeredness changes how we can now, therefore, see ourselves correctly in view of the cross. The verses 54 and 56. It's quite the uh, statement here going on. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned away and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Don't you love how brutally honest the Bible is? Disciples, disciples they're, not, they're not these hero men. They're dorks. They just speak. I think I've heard Peter go before. Draw, shoot, aim, Peter. He just talks. Why don't they? They just ask you, Jesus lives. I know you're God. You want to do that for you? You want to just clean the house, just slaughter? He's being serious here. Don't you love that they're not paying the disciples in this? A-plus mentality. Because what they're saying is, Lord, let's torch him. And what's interesting is there's no room for mercy. Do you see that? So, what, so they turn. What happens? People reject Jesus. And what do the disciples think they just want to do? Kill him. Lord, I've seen you feed thousands. <coughs> Make a rail of fire. It's funny. But it's evil because of the foolishness and evil within their hearts. Look at your own heart. Your best way to see your your heart, how you really think about others and the cross and yourself. If, for me, it's driving. Y'all ever drive before? When, when my wife and I drive, everyone's wrong. Everyone's a horrible driver. Put your blinker on. Would you slow down? Right? But when my blinker's not on, you know what I expect? Well, let's go out in a hurry. We want justice to just slam everybody else. And boy, do we want mercy. After all, that would be fair, wouldn't it? You know, you can't demand mercy. You understand that? It cannot be demanded. By definition, it cannot be demanded. It's not getting what you deserve. I think we know a great example of one who changed that way. Paul. The Apostle Paul went to great lengths to ruin, imprison, destroy Christians. He was, and he flipped it, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was a Pharisee, he says he was born from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul was, Paul's man. And yet, after the cross, Paul knew that he was the chief of sinners. He knew that there was no one's book of dying. I know my heart. I've seen what I think of dying. I've seen my duty in the day. I've seen my inclinations, my desires, my motives. The wicked. 
We'll do that. So I think if you look at verse 54, James and John, I think they were aiming, I think they were aiming for a good thing, like Jesus, we want to defend your honor, we want to do it well. But they're awful in what they said. Now what's funny is, we know who John was. He's a disciple of love, right? God is love. Kill him, Jesus. Right? This is before the cross. Before he was converted. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that Jesus himself, when he saw the crowds, I'm sorry, Matthew says that he had compassion. Peter says that when he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth, but continued trusting himself to the one who judges justly. We are to be moved with compassion and sorrow and trust their souls and ours to the judge of all the earth. And remember, James and John before this, if you look just above your Bibles, verse 46, James and John, and Mark has told us who that is, that they go, hey, Jesus, can we sit your right hand and your left hand? Can we just, like, ride shopping in it? And here they're saying, Jesus, clean house. What's terrible is that we do the same. We expect, as my Kindle restarts mid-sermon, we expect that Jesus should be infinitely merciful to us and not to others. So here's what I want you to understand. Look at this. Do you want to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Friends, do you know that you are a rebel at heart? Do you know that your heart is wicked? Have you seen the Ten Commandments? Have you seen that massive mirror of God's law that just says, look what you've not done? See, God's law isn't meant to say, if you try really hard, nail it. It's meant to say, you can't even do these. Just the basic things you can't follow. Guys, we are covetous. We are bitter. Someone cuts me off, they are always wrong. It could be a practical in the front seat. I don't care. Wrong. Cut me off like that ever again. We're short. Likewise, others. Angry. We lie. We lust. We're idolaters. What does Jesus do? He's kind. Look what he does. Verse 55. He turned and rebuked them. Now, I don't know what he said. I don't know. So conjecture would be dangerous here. Granted. I like to assume he, he just. I just told you, he would say this, I just told you in verse 44, it's coming. You, you, you forgot what I said. You know I said? The Lord turned and rebuked him. If you know anything about the book of Hebrews, rebuking is not necessarily a bad thing, is it? If you have a father, you know that it's a good thing that your dad spanked you. It's a good thing he told you you were wrong. It's a good thing he rebuked you because you're his son. I don't go down the stairs and spank your children. I don't know why they be weird. First of all, that. So well, they're not my kids. Jesus rebuked his own. Friends, we need some rebuking. We need to understand that when we see the folly of others, that is God's providential way of saying, you are the exact same way. See, if you believe that God's sovereign, has plenty of your life, every detail, as I do, as the Bible says, you know that one of his grand purposes in life for you is Romans 8.29. What's it? Romans 8.29. Those of you who foreknew, 
He's also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. So what does that mean? One of God's main purposes in your life to make you look more like Christ. It means you're going to get rebuked in your life. The psalmist says that happy, blessed is the one whom you reprove. Happy. Friends, let this come with a rebuke. That when you see the folly of others, you just hope, man, how fire comes down that guy. Jesus could do the same to you. Did he have, did the Samaritans deserve to die for death Jesus? Yes, we'd say that. Did that sin to reject the Messiah? Yes. Would it be just if Jesus said, okay, torture? Correct. I, I think you can say that biblically. <coughs> Would it be just for the disciples, not ten chapters later, to be torched as they deny Christ? And Peter does it with swearing. Would that be just? Yes. Why didn't he do it? Because that fire was meant first for himself. Jesus would come to bear the fire for sinners. And in his rebuke, Jesus is so tender with his sheep. You know that? You just, you're just, your little inner attorney rises up. I work at a courthouse. I've seen attorneys at work. It's quite, it's quite a sight. Your attorney just stirs up and says, But you, every soul you think of, everything not forgotten, to your spouse, to your friend, your coworker, rises up. You want to rip it to shreds. You want fire to come down. Have you not seen the cross where your fire came down on the sun? Jesus did not come to condemn the world, to save the world. He came to save sinners. If you're a believer this morning, your sinful requests, your sinful heart, said to James and John, is why he went to the tree in the first place. Rebukes you because he loves you. Proverbs says the rebuke from a friend is like a sweet kiss. Hopefully, in this decade from your life, there's time to this from your wife, but the point is, it's sweet from a friend. Your friends are not going to rebuke you and keep you on track. Do you know those who can just lay open your arm with a question? I have one. It's sting, Elizabeth. It's good. Jesus rebukes those who he loves. He turns and rebukes them. He goes on to another village. Jesus is not done. Look at, if you look at Luke chapter 10, I want to go there. If you look, what does he do? He sends out the 72. He's not done with people. And he's not done with Samaritans. He's not done with sinners. Jesus continues on to the cross. We understand three things. Jesus was a cross sinner. He loved the cross. God loves the cross. He loves his own glory in the cross when he did it. Second, when you see the cross, see that you are messengers of that very cross. You don't change it. You don't tamper with it. It's wicked. You just deliver. Present. Lay it out. And you entrust it. The spirit of your life to the Lord. You know that. He saves many. When our sins they are many, his mercy is Last, when you see the cross, you see yourself. You are rebellious. You are not obedient the way you should. This specific confession, reading Romans 5, is just 
hearing it read is just beautiful. The text is just supreme. Where sin abounded, where your sin abounds tomorrow morning, tonight, Wednesday, when you get ticked off, when you lust, when you covet, when you get bitter, when your sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We thank you for the cross, that you were steadfast, that you were resolute, that you bore the wrath reserved for Help us to see others in light of that cross correctly. Help us to see ourselves correctly in light of the cross. Help us to see at the center of your heart, the center of Christ, the center of your work, and your glory is in the cross of Jesus Christ, who was slain for the foundation of the world for those who have given to your son. Lord, we love you. We trust you with those we do not know know you. We trust you with those we talk to. We trust you with our own lives.